At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. 2023 has been a milestone year in the music world. And no, I'm not just talking about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. This year, hip hop turned 50. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> From its start in the early 70s, with rappers like Grandmaster Flash, DJs performing at block parties in the Bronx, Hip-hop has grown into a cultural cornerstone, not just in the United States, but across the world. For example, Zambian rapper Sampa the Great, who you hear now, uses her lyrics to celebrate her African roots. In the U.S., when you think of hip-hop, you typically think of big cities. West Coast rappers like Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg come from Los Angeles. East Coast rappers like Jay-Z, Biggie Smalls, and the Wu-Tang Clan come from New York City. Smaller cities like Boston also played a role in hip-hop's evolution, according to our guest today, music historian Dart Adams. Boston is not exactly famous for its contributions to Black music and culture, but maybe it should be. Dart, welcome to Say More. Thanks for having me. So I can't believe hip-hop has been around for 50 years. I mean, and we tend to think of hip-hop as music. But it's so much more than that, right? Yeah. Well, hip-hop is an actual culture. It's the uh, most dominant youth culture on the planet. Uh, It goes back 50 years officially. I'm using air quotes. But the first pieces of it probably uh, sprang up between 1967 and 1968. And all of these things that we now know as hip-hop culture sprang out from all these um, universes that came together in one, you know, centralized borough of New York that dealt with so much. And how does music become culture? I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the beginnings of hip-hop, 
and how it came together, pretty much it was young people finding a reason to party and celebrate in the midst of chaos, in the midst of inequality, uh, in the middle of burning buildings and the city just being financially strapped and doing nothing for these people. Um, we're dealing with mostly black and Latino youth that have just been, they have no opportunities and they find fun. So just like with jazz culture, there's the music, but there's also the culture around it. It's the same thing with hip hop, you know, and it grew over time. And where does Boston fit into the national hip hop scene? Is it pretty similar to New York in terms of sound and style? Everybody knows that New York is a melting pot and that it has people of different backgrounds and ethnicities, whereas they don't know that about Boston. And Boston is along pretty much along the same lines. Uh, me being a native of Boston, born and raised here. So I grew up around people from uh, Latin America, Central America, uh, the islands, uh, the Caribbean and different parts of Africa, East Africa. Um, and they all came together with their different backgrounds and different ethnicities, people from Cape Verde, um, Brazil, what have you. And they all made it possible to, you know, become a part of Boston culture. And the reason Boston rap sounds the way it does is one, because it was imitating and following the blueprint laid forth by New York. But it sounds different because Boston is a different entity onto itself. So let's stay in the early days of, of Boston hip-hop. I think you've written about how in Boston, the first rap records were played locally on MIT's radio station and also on a Black radio station, WILD. So again, what were those early days like? Well, so the first rap records came out in 1979, and among one of the first radio stations to play rap were, you know, WRBB, which is um, Northeastern's uh, radio station. At MIT, you had a show called The Ghetto that started in 1968, but in 1979 started playing rap. Uh, basically, Boston being a college town with, with people to come from all over, and also, you know, being a, a town where black music, especially Boston funk, a lot of the early Boston funk producers like Arthur Baker, Michael Johnson, Maurice Starr, Tony Rose were early rap producers from between 1979 and 1983. So it sounds like the college stations played a, a big role here uh, in, in playing hip hop in those early days. So what were what were the early what was the early scene like, um, you know, back then, you know, uh, hip hop's playing on the radio? I mean, were there shows happening in, in Boston neighborhoods? So one of the big issues with Boston, of course, when it comes to black music and black culture in general, is that it's hard to find venues for black music or black art in general. So when rap emerges in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, they pretty much have to use the community schools mm. as venues. You could do stuff at community centers like the Harriet Tubman House in my neighborhood. So it was a lot of people using whatever they could mostly community schools, uh, the streets, uh, partying at parks, anywhere that was available to perform, you took because it was hard to get anybody to subscribe to. We're going to have these young people, these young black kids from Roxbury, South End, Dorchester, Jamaica Plain perform here. Right. So, so people tend to think of Boston as a white city, um, mm -hmm. but the black population is, is close to 25% these days. Um, and when 
people think of a famous artist from Boston, you know, they picture Ben Affleck or Matt Damon or or even Mark Wahlberg, right? He was Marky Mark. Um, so does it bother you that Boston's Black artists don't have more recognition on the national stage? Oh, absolutely. When you think about Boston, you think about Boston rock and the Boston rock scene. So you ultimately begin thinking about Aerosmith, the Cars, Jay Giles Band, um, people of that nature. But all of these performers were in the same space as, you know, all the black performers that did Boston funk, soul, R&B, jazz. Um, a lot of times they had to share venues and studios. Um, I, I tell people all the time that a young gang star used the same venue as the Pixies. They used the same studio uh, at the Cyclorama of Boston uh, Downtown Recorders. Um, and when I tell people that, they can't fathom how it's possible because in their minds, Boston is a rock town. I mean, when we look at Donna Summer, who's easily one of the most influential and important artists in music history. She's from Boston. She's the pride of both Roxbury and Dorchester. But Boston didn't recognize her until she died, That's even right. though Boston's black and Latino communities always did. So there's always been that disconnect. We're not going to see the same recognition for Johnson Crew or necessarily New Edition. You know, a lot of a lot had to happen before New Edition actually began getting recognized by Boston on a regular basis and claimed by them. So how did New Edition break out? So New Edition broke out beginning in 1983 from the Boston funk um, community and the Boston talent show circuit. Uh, in 1983, they put out a song called Candy Girl and knocks Michael Jackson off the top of the R&B charts, which were more competitive than the pop charts. They end up suing their record label Streetwise and getting on MCA and becoming an even bigger group. And from there, the boy band phenomenon doesn't happen without uh, the success of uh, Boston's own New Edition. I've heard you tell this story before. And so when New Edition got really big, right, and I, I think they might have spent a lot of time in L.A., maybe they were based in LA, L.A. at some point. And when they made it big, I think the record label wanted wanted them to erase their Boston roots, right? Well, one of the big issues with Black music in Boston is that when people think Black music, when they think Black culture, they think Boston is the antithesis of it. MCA was the most prominent uh, Black music label and Black music department, which was based in Los Angeles. So in order to promote these guys, what they did was they were in LA, so they had them uh, do a video with the Los Angeles Lakers, even though they're from Boston. And what it did was it made them more palatable to black music consumers, but it pretty much erased all their Boston identity at the same time. And I think that during their early careers, every opportunity was taken to try to have people forget if they even knew that they're from Boston. 
Whereas when they took control of their careers, they made it a point to let everybody know that they are Bostonians and they represent Roxbury at every point. Well, I want to go back to the point that you made earlier that that you had, you know, rising hip hop stars in Boston, uh, you know, sharing the same studio uh, with the Pixies, yet nobody knows who they are. What what should have been done so they that these other artists got recognized? Well, it's a never ending story with Boston that it does not go out of its way to uh, embrace or, you know, showcase non-white artists, performers, actors, what have you. Ayo Edabiri is pretty much one of the biggest stars in film television today. This is the actress, the actress from The Bear, right? Yeah, she's from Dorchester. Tina, fire every single chicken we have, please, okay? Richie, do you even know how to do fries? Yes, I know we need them now. Okay, um, Marcus, where are we on cakes? Uh, get in there. Getting there? What the had she been a young white girl, she'd be on the cover of every magazine, every publication. Um, and that's kind of the case with Boston. And it bleeds into music where they're going to talk about Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch because it's headed by Mark Wahlberg. But they don't talk about the fact that Mark's songs were written by MC Spice, who was the first um, rapper to be signed to a major label. And he's from here. MC Spice is from here. Yes, yes. MC Spice is from um from uh Roxbury. Uh he wrote uh Good Vibrations, he wrote Wild Side, and wow. he produced he helped produce both records. Wow. And so people in Boston know that, you know, people in the inner city know that, but to most people it's just Marky Mark is Mark the head of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, and that song ends up becoming the second rap song to hit number one in the Hot 100 after um, Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby. Oh, wow. And, you know, a lot of people have no idea that, you know, it was written by MC Spice. More of my conversation with Dart Adams after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now. Let's stay on the topic of Boston. So it's been 50 years since the busing crisis uh, that followed the desegregation of schools. And uh, a lot of us still remember the infamous photo, right, of a white protester lunging at a black man, you know, with an American flagpole. Um, 
And, you know, Boston has, it's been 50 years, but Boston hasn't been able to shake its racist reputation, you know, whether it's comedian Michael Che or uh, NBA star LeBron James talking about how racist the city is. I mean, how do you think our racist history has affected the rise of hip hop and black artists here? It's done so much damage (laughs) to Boston's black and Latino and non-white communities that it's hard to get anybody to believe that we even exist. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, yes, Boston is perceived as a racist city, but it's also because Boston has done nothing, near nothing, to dissuade people that it is. The most prominent things about Boston always pervade the stereotype of Boston being an overwhelmingly white city and Boston's culture being overwhelmingly white. Whereas I've lived here, born and raised for 48 years of my life, and in my experience, it's the polar opposite. Boston culture and Boston is so much more. There's so much more rich, diverse uh, things about Boston that all these people who came from all over the world and came here and contributed to the city, uh, you know, changed it. So I think that that's one of the big issues. When people think of Boston, they don't think of someone that looks like you, someone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. They immediately flash to a Ben Affleck and a Dunkin' Donuts commercial, you know? And that's one of the big issues with why we're not getting anywhere because the lasting image of Boston will always be Ted Landsmark getting speared with the American flag by a guy from Southie. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be B-roll of people protesting busing back in 1976, 77, and 78. You know, it's never going to be kids frolicking in Roxbury. It's never going to be happy kids in Chinatown. It's never going to be kids of all ethnicities in Jamaica Plain or Dorchester. It's never going to be that. But it needs to be that. And until Boston actually makes the uh, steps forward to doing that and highlighting how what the city really is, as opposed to its old image, we're going to be stuck here. Mm -hmm. So hip hop can be a form of documentary for black communities. There's this one song that comes to mind. It's called Speak Upon It by Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs. It's from 1991. It's about a white man named Charles Stewart uh, who killed his wife, but told the police she was killed by a black guy. And and that caused raids in black neighborhoods in Boston. Media believe in the Esau fable. And all the whites were like, I can't wait till they catch the bastard. I hope they find him. They were sure that he did it. There was no need to try him and Willie Bennett, who was in it to win it. The song really captures that moment. What is the cultural impact of protest anthems like Speak Upon It? The only way to really document anything that happened in Boston for everybody to know about it, other than what the newspapers were going to run with because they love sensationalism, was having the actual community here talk about it on record. So do you remember that song when it came out in 1991? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And what went through your mind when you heard that song? That we actually had somebody who did a song that talked about what was going on in Boston and represented for us. And now everybody was finally going to hear it. Um, Because, again, when Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs put out their album, um, Life of the Kid in the Ghetto in 1991, it was by and far the first rap record that come out of Boston on a major label that everybody agreed upon that it was a classic album and more that an overwhelming majority of people who were in the in the know knew about or heard or bought. So that changed the landscape for everything. 
Edelgy and the Bulldogs album really helped everybody understand that, oh, wait, there is a rap community. There are MCs and DJs and, you know, there's a rap scene in Boston. And when you listen to that era, the, the 90s, I mean, and the 80s and 90s hip hop and what's coming out of the Boston artists, um, what is the story it told about black life in the 80s and 90s in Boston? Well, um, it kind of paralleled black life all over the United States of America at the time. We're under a Republican regime. Uh, we've lost so many resources in the inner city. Um, we're dealing with the rise of crack. Um, gangs, gang violence is, is on the up because of the uh, proliferation of, of crack. Um, and we're just dealing with so many things that somebody had to discuss it. And when we dealt with, when he had the civil rights movement in the late 60s going into the 70s and all the chaos that, that came up came up under that, we had soul, R&B, and funk artists that were talking about the times. And with jazz music, jazz music, uh, it kind of reflected the changing era coming out of the 40s and 50s into the civil rights movement, even if it didn't have words. And what rap did coming out of hip hop culture is it directly talked about the issues. It directly talked about uh, the economic disparity. It directly talked about um, the violence that we were dealing with on a daily basis. It directly talked about the culture that was prevalent um, in America's inner cities. So when I listen to the music coming out of Boston in that same era, it just specifically talks about the things that I saw and I dealt with growing up, you know, in the inner city of, of Boston in the uh in the like late 80s going into the 90s. So what's Boston's hip hop scene like today and, and what makes it unique? So Boston's hip hop scene now thrives because again, a lot of it is young people who grew up with parents who also were part of the, you know, hip hop black music scene in Boston. And they saw the disparity and rather than just go along with it, they did something about it. Um, they started finding ways to get into new venues. They started working with the, uh, the city, you know, they got involved in local politics, you know, and now things have changed where we have a thriving community. We probably have more talent in the last 10, 15 years in Boston's rap scene than we've ever had. Really? And more, wow. yes, absolutely. And more diverse talent. And uh, it's to a point where it's bursting at the seams. And uh, we were really on an uptick right before the pandemic happened. And I think right now we're finally getting back to there. There are so many different uh, venues and opportunities now that have arisen due to young people seeing things that just like, we need space. We need opportunity. And they've all, you know, made it work over the last 10 years and is a blossoming uh, situation right now. Um, and um, I'm going to ask you a, a few questions on this front here. So um, so what's your favorite uh, Boston hip hop song? Uh, of all time, I Gotta Have It by Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs. Come off. I'm from Roxbury, the berry, but not the fruit, y'all. Don't make me act like where I come from, cause it's brutal. Hold my bone in a zone that's neutral. Soon to be large, the whole nine yards, but I ain't suit, y'all. Suckers be swearing that they're staring, it's gonna scare me. Look, but don't touch, and if you do, be prepared. Before I let you go, 
maybe you could, you know, uh, expose expose the listeners to a new artist from Boston. So what would be that one track? Uh, definitely uh, Nay Speaks, Neighborhood Healer. Why that song? Uh, because it's an artist that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of, but she's um, up and coming. Uh, the Boston Music Awards are coming up, and I think that it's important to like expose people to uh, young talent. Thank you for uh, coming on the show and helping us celebrate hip-hop turning 50. Hey, thanks. That's what I'm here for. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer and Jesse Remedios, with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Canino. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Amit. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. For a list of tracks you heard on today's episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. So